Hi, listeners. This is Marcia Epstein with Talk With Me. And as I'm reminding people, this is Chapter 3. <laughs> These episodes are a little different, continuing to evolve the show that started back on December 26, 2013. That's a long time ago. Wow, wow, wow. Art and mental health, that intersection is what's really important to me. And I love that in so many ways including that there are so many wonderful opportunities wherever you are to get out and hear people's stories and experiences when they're at the mic or maybe you're one of those people who goes to the mic it's really important stuff that happens when we share like that so today i get to have one of my people one of my friends one of the people who will be part of our annual event called words save lives which is always on World Suicide Prevention Day and is here in Lawrence, Kansas. My friend with a new book and several others and lots of things going on. Um, and we have in common that we both were recently in Door County, Wisconsin, whatever place that is. <laughs> Welcome, Rhonda Miller. Thank you. And Door County, Wisconsin, what's a beautiful place. Lovely. Yeah, you passed through, what, about a week before I went? Yeah, or? we were probably kind of missed each other. And you were getting ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> and you guys drove too, right? We drove and then kayaked some when we were there. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm it's a little more timid about kayaking. It was like, I could do zip line. The answer was no. I could that, do. That terrifies me. I have a terrible <laughs> Oh, Me too. Uh, kayaking, I was like, uh, I don't think so. And then I found horseback riding. So I did oh, go horseback riding. Lovely. And it was just beautiful through those, as you know, full height meadows with flowers of all different colors yeah. everywhere. And then one area was actually in through kind of a forested area and the temperature dropped by 10 degrees right away and a blue, the wind blew in and saw a lovely buck back in the distance. And so that was really, really nice. And I hadn't been horseback riding since the last time I had been in Colorado. And it's something that I always do when I'm on vacation. So I had the thought, you know, I could be doing it in Kansas. There, Kansas is one of the states with the most horses of all of them. Um, so it's something that I need to make sure that I'm doing while I'm here and not just waiting for vacation time. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how this is for you, but when I think of horses, because of your niece's name, I oh. always think of your niece, Sorrel. Right. You know, just having heard about her from you. Right. And I don't know if, if that connection comes She was. Her mother, uh, Claudia, a real horse person and actually did English writing in Washington State, where she was from. Uh -huh. And uh, so, yeah, Sorrel was, was the, uh, the name for that reason. They tried to convince me when they knew I was having a daughter uh, that I should name her um, Oh, what's the name of the horse? It starts with the A. Appaloosa. A Appaloosa. Uh -huh. And of course, I named her Apollonia. And they're like, well, why don't you go with Appaloosa? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. This is kind of a different different background as opposed to that one. But uh, <laughs> I appreciated where they were coming from. <laughs> when I was a kid, I had a paint horse. So at least you didn't have to name a kid paint. Yeah, paint horses are beautiful, too. We had a little Shetland pony as I was growing up on my farm named Blackie. And so, yeah, I've always had a love of horses, too. And loved all those initial books of the black stallion and the black stallion's revenge and black stallion's courage and return of the black stallion and son of the black stallion i should be writing children's stories probably about oh, horses <laughs> it's a funny thing though because it's like everything else you know there are these different kinds of experiences we have and i can remember talking to a friend of mine who's like, oh yeah she says i grew up with horses we used to go to this stable blah 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 and i said well the difference is we were really poor and we lived out in the country and there were tumbleweeds and cattle and horses that kind of exactly. wandered around. Yes. It's kind of a different world than you and your fancy stable. Yes. And you were kind of catch them as you can and we rode bareback and had the haul the rope we were swinging. <laughs> Probably was wearing my either kids' tennis shoes or barefoot, one or the other, yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, unfortunately, for luckily neighbors were far away, but. Uh, Unfortunately, for some reason, thought that riding bareback meant that I was bareback. Cool. So I didn't have a shirt on. I'd have a kerchief on. And I, of course, was a little boy at that time instead uh -huh. of a little girl. And, you know, it's like in your childhood fantasies. It's yeah. just crazy. But a lot of good memories from, from my horse. That's so. sweet. There's yeah. a cool Dara Williams song called When I Was a Boy. I know. I had loved that one. <laughs> it is beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very cool. 
So for people who haven't met you and your work, tell, tell a little bit about your background and, and what you're up to. Okay. Um, I actually went to Wisconsin to stay at um, uh, Right On, which is in Door County. And um, it was a writer in residency program that I found out about from Denise Lowe. So my obligation or duty was to go and spend a week alone at this beautiful facility that even has its own little writer's coop out behind. And that's where I was when the um, eclipse took place. And um, of course, Wisconsin didn't experience it as much as parts of Kansas and Nebraska and Missouri did. But I, and I didn't have glasses, so I just sat inside the writer's coop and observed nature and the crickets and cicadas got real loud and then total hush as it got a little bit darker. And, and, uh, and that was probably quiet for about a good 10 minutes. And then they started up again as it began to get a little lighter. But so that was a very memorable experience. But uh, I went with in mind, I've, I've published three books of poetry. Water Signs just came out in July. It was my third book of poetry. And I just uh, am working on my memoir called Gun Memories. Oh. So uh, I had sent you a poem, I think a couple of weeks ago, about basically asking my father permission to be able to talk about our experiences or my experiences and his experiences. And I felt that I was given that. But when I got there, particularly being in solitude and by myself and thinking about the different gun memories that I've had, I was actually pretty fearful, and uh, it wasn't until I was there for a couple of days that I really felt freed up enough that I was able to start writing and was able to write a couple of chapters about different gun memories. And it's been kind of an interesting process because I've asked people just recently what gun memories they have, thinking that, like me, they've got a book's worth of separate chapters, each on a different gun memory. And some people surprised me and said they have no gun memories. And uh, so that's been been really interesting. Um, one of the things I did kind of as a trade-off for getting to go was to do a presentation in Sturgeon Bay. And uh, that was fascinating. I, my presentation was um, the motion and emotion, rewriting trauma without so much drama. And I'm used to presenting before other groups of writers and all the people that were there had not written, weren't professional writers. Um, one woman came for like a five hour drive. Um, she was that fascinated with the topic. And um, it was interesting. I had people kind of give me a little background of what their personal trauma was. And uh, one woman particularly, you know, was listing things like, um, you know, that they moved quite a bit when they were children and something that I thought was kind of on the lower end of, of trauma mm -hmm. emotion. And uh, by the, I gave them each two opportunities to write. The second time she wrote, she'd had a remembrance that um, her sister had died by suicide 25 years ago. She had been the one to walk in and find her sister. And so she wrote about that. And, you know, she cried and was very emotional throughout the time that she shared her reading. Her reading was absolutely beautiful. And uh, the woman, uh, her sister also had, a young daughter that had come in, you know, behind her when she found her mother. And uh, she said 10 years ago, she'd asked the daughter if she would be interested in the quilt that's for suicide names, people mm -hmm. that we've lost a suicide and the daughter didn't, didn't want to. So my challenge to her, I tried to give each of them a challenge was to ask the, her niece, the, the woman's daughter again, since it's been 10 years later and she may have a whole different mm -hmm. feeling about doing that. But, um, so just things like that come about, you know, things that are total surprises, um, you know, just it's miraculous what people share in settings yeah. like that. Yeah. And, you know, they they act like they can't talk about it or they're, you know, I haven't written about this, but I wanted to, I wanted to. And just the simple giving them permission and the space to do it. And then they write. Yeah. And they wrote beautiful stuff. Every bit as good as uh -huh. professional writers. One woman wrote about the sounds of her uh deceased husband's ankles as they creaked when he'd go up the stairs you know wow. just she was wanting to leave something behind uh for the children and the grandchildren about him and so i encouraged her to write slices of life about him as she had memories and that really tells much more about him than he was born in such and such and yeah. went to school and you know that type of thing yeah. so yeah it was it was very nice and when you mentioned giving people permission 
you know, knowing you, part of the way that you give people permission is you model it, you do it, you, you share right. with your own experiences and your words. And so it's not like you get to write. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'll just be here observing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yes, I try to start off with a couple of my, my more deep poems about my own experiences. And I think after that, I know when I hear somebody really go deep, which I do all the time and events that we've been at together, uh, it does. It gives you permission to dig deeper and to, to be able to say freely, speak freely about what you want to. And and I want to just briefly segue into the fact that you also do coaching. And the reason that is on my mind is because during the week that we were in Wisconsin is when there was a very tragic story of a, a dad who killed his ex and their three-year-old and then himself right. here in Lawrence. And, and I know that you are a person who is a support person for people who've been affected by murder. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was, uh, you know, that's our community. It's not something we have happen often. And we'd had a shooting uh, just a day or two before that on 6th Street at a, a convenience store. I don't, haven't heard. I think that person survived. But then to have three, you know, deaths uh, just a couple of days after that one, it was just pretty shocking. So yeah. um, it is, it is hard. It's a lot of trauma for people that are on all sides, friends and family. And, you know, I always think personally that um, there could be little worse than losing someone you love to suicide, unless it is the case where yeah. your child or someone you love takes somebody else's life. And I think that one is particularly, um, you know, horrible. So, yeah, it's very complicated. It's very complicated. It is. And I, I, you know, I don't want to stay there, but but we know that there are families who have those experiences. And what we know is that those experiences need to come out in the light with safe people. You right. Know, people need to be able to talk about them. They need to be able to process them. They need to make meaning. And sometimes the meaning they're going to make is different than somebody else. I've, I've been, you know, had the opportunity to, to talk to somebody who is a survivor of that kind of, murder and suicide yeah. and and you know in this case he lost his wife and his children in another case the the woman lost her husband and and a child and you know for them to make sense you know to to put together their understanding of what happened right and in both of those cases to really recognize that really profound mental illness and severe thinking that wasn't really very reality-based is what caused that. Absolutely. You know, and so then at some point, in addition to all the other feelings, there's some compassion for the person who actually perpetrated. Right, right. Which is hard for a lot of people to imagine, but for anybody who might happen to hear this broadcast who's had that experience, you know, it's, it's I think it's important to know that, that there may be people who have that experience, even though you haven't, you may have had those losses and you may not have ever had somebody say anything other than hateful, hateful things. Right. And that's, that's really hard. And that's not the way it should be. And I think, you know, I appreciate how compassionate you are and you always have been, whether it's involved somebody who's a drunken driver who has accidentally killed someone or whether it's a yeah. situation like this. And, you know, it is important, but I think it's, and I, I mentioned to the people in, in my group too, that it's important for them to tell their stories, but maybe not tell it to family members or their closest friends, because oftentimes those people have their biases or viewed it differently. So they uh, oftentimes get stopped and say, oh, no, this is what I think, mm -hmm. whereas they're needing somebody basically to listen to them yeah. and understand it from their viewpoint <clears throat> and and help them. So I really encourage people to talk, whether it's a suicide loss or homicide loss to someone who's a professional like yourself who can listen and not um, you know get attached to a specific viewpoint um, so yeah yeah so you bring a lot of life experience to everything that you do which includes writing and includes taking care of other people's little children yes. <laughs> and I'm missing one little person in particular I'm missing a couple of them I had three of them go off to kindergarten this year but Leanna I see those photos of her on Facebook with glitter tattoos all over. <laughs> And I'm sure she's loving it, but she'll be the sweetest person in class. I mean, she's probably already bowled the teacher over by offering her services for everything. 
she's so helpful. She's just such an intuitive, caring person. So very empathetic. If somebody else gets hurt, she'll be the one over there fixing them and helping them up. So yeah, that's a genetic trait that I have seen between Rose and Georgia and Sam, of course, too. But uh, Leanna's definitely got it. So yeah. she's amazing. And so back to you with all the things that your life has included to this point. Who knows what else? Writing. How how did how did writing become something that you could do? Because I, I I think about how I grew up and there was a lot of turmoil and there was way more in the way that you grew up. So so how did it become like something that you even knew you might be able to do or might benefit from? How how did you start? I think yeah after my mom's suicide and uh, my sister and I were taken to live with one aunt and uncle in Colorado and my brother taken to a, a different family in Kansas. And of course, then we lost contact with my dad, but I had an uncle and aunt and the uncle, I was three at the time, really was into nurturing us and sang all the nursery rhymes and, you know, sat on his knee and, and uh, played with us, really devoted a lot of time. And he was, my sister's two and a half years older than I. So she was going off to kindergarten and I guess they would probably work with her when she came home. But um, he taught me all my letters and numbers, and I was reading pretty well um, before, and then he passed away like a year or so later. Oh. And um, so then my aunt and moved into uh, town. They were living on a sugar beet factory outside of Fort Collin or Fort Morgan, Colorado. So then she moved into the town of Fort, Col uh, Fort Morgan, I'm sorry, in an apartment complex. And my sister and I lived with her for a while and, until my father came through and did his little kidnapping um, situation when I was probably about six at that time. So a lot of transitions, but I think I always connected writing and reading with that closeness that I felt to my Uncle Earl. Um, mm -hmm. And then once I got to my grandparents' farm, I had pretty much stopped talking. Um, I was a very quiet child and a very disturbed child, and it's the type of kid that in bed at night was, you know, smashing my head into the wall. A lot of nightmares, just really the trauma came out that way. And at some point, of course, we read a lot. Uh, there really wasn't much to do on the farm. It was out of quite a ways from town, and my grandparents were already in their mid-50s, so weren't active people. Um, just read a lot. They had uh, Edgar Allan Poe and Walt Whitman, books like that around, mm. oddly enough. And uh, so the first poem I memorized was The Raven at probably age eight and would probably horrify people when they came to visit <laughs> because there I was, and I was, you know, um, giving it to them, you know. Was, <laughs> Who is this yeah, Exactly. She's a little on the demented side. <laughs> and I was. I was very black, you know. Uh, well, understandably. Yeah. And I had uh, actually age seven, I think, was the first time I accidentally mm -hmm. was out behind the house and had picked up something out of the trash incinerator, and it was a light bulb. And as I picked it up and, you know, kind of closed my hand, it, it broke open and cut me. And you know, so I'm bleeding and it was just this most incredible power and release feeling. And I started cutting myself at that age wow. and having a very strong suicidal ideology um, at that young of an age. Um, my grandparents weren't the types of people that, you know, took yes, even to the doctor, let alone to a psychologist or psychiatrist in yeah. those days. But I can remember at one point when my grandmother saw that I had, you know, wounds up and down my arms, she said, you know, stop doing that and uh so i did at that point in time um but then of course i as you know later age 17 i ended up in an institution for seven weeks from doing self-harm so um it was pretty much constantly on my mind uh, you know and when you don't talk about things freely we weren't allowed to talk about our mother's suicide and we were missing our dad horribly and missing our brother horribly and all those things you know really take their toll so yeah. um, my sister started taking short stories I was writing into an English teacher she had in high school and he would grade them and then she'd bring them back to me. So that was a huge encouragement. So I have to thank Carl Warner for his mm. gift of uh, time that he gave to my disgusting little stories. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot, I think the first of them was about some Italian guy from Chicago that had come to our farm to visit and uh, of course good gotten bitten by rattlesnakes and died. And <laughs> so I was already working, you know, the, the whole male thing. It's like, we got to kill these males. 
my attitude hasn't changed too much. <laughs> Go for the tall, dark, and handsome ones, but then kill them. <laughs> That's horrible, isn't it? Uh, but now I'm, uh, I mentioned working on Dunn Memories, just knowing I was going to go to be uh, the writer in residency and be able to work on it. I sent was my first three chapters that I'd written to my publisher, Tracy Million Simmons with Meadowart Books. And um, just so she would have them. And it was kind of like, you know, something I'd been working on for 11 years, Marcia. And it's just horribly hard to write your memoir, yet I can you know, fly through other stuff. And when I'm trying to write the memoir, a lot of times poetry pushes its way forward and insists that it be written first. So just kind of interesting how the uh, subconscious, I think, plays with us on that level and mm -hmm. things that are ready to come out, do mm -hmm. come out. So, yeah. And it has to be interesting. And I think about in, in my experience, the people around us, don't have the same experience. So even if they were there at the same time, right. their story about it would be very Absolutely. different. And I experienced that pretty profoundly with my brothers when we were talking after our mom's death. Right. You know, and it's very different. My truth was my truth was influenced by the fact that there were things that happened differently to me because I was a young girl. Sure. You know, but but it was it was really interesting to realize how different. That was, and so I, in a, with the memoir, I don't know how this works. If if there's a part of you, somehow you have to give yourself permission to write what your what your story is, right. the way you understand it. And I think that that can be hard. Well, you worry about family perceptions, or I did, and I know even in the beginning of Water Signs, because some of my poetry is based on some family members. Um, I kind of do a little little thing in the beginning that, you know, uh, not an apology really, but just, uh, you know, realize that my memories and experiences with this person may be very different from yours. Yeah. And certainly being a grandchild to somebody when they had other grandchildren who yeah. weren't living with them, yeah. um, you know, those grandchildren would come and visit and they'd maybe have a wonderful time and go home again and, you know, very different reality, I'd say, for my sister yeah. and I. So, yeah. There's a, a quote from the writer Anne Lamott that's something to the effect of, if people don't like what you wrote about them, they should have behaved better. <laughs> I love that. And I think it's very true. And it makes me very guarded around other writers. <laughs> I'm putting on my best face to my writer friends, yes. <laughs> no, but it is a good point, yeah. And I know Harry Cruz, he was a famous Southern writer. I met him. Um, when I was getting my creative writing degree at the University of Kansas. And I wanted to write about him desperately in my memoir. We had a brief relationship, and uh, which I'm sure really tarnished my name at the English department. But <laughs> I kept thinking, well, how am I going to fit him in as a gun memory? And then, of course, the professor who brought him to town was Professor Gunn. So oh, he is a gun memory. Yeah. yeah, so that worked out well. But I called him a couple of years before he died and said, I'm working on my memoir and would like to write about you. May I have your permission? And he, of course, a real gruff voice and sure, you know, as long as you fucking tell the truth, you know, I don't care. <laughs> but, uh, and that was so much what his writing was. It was a, the hard truth. And, you know, I think that's what I expect of writers is, is the hard truth. And, you know, it's really difficult to write anything without fictionalizing it at some point. I know, uh, I guess it was Professor Oli at the creative writing department when he knew I was writing it said, you know, you're going to have to uh, be able to create conversations that you couldn't have heard uh, because either you weren't born yet or were too young. Yeah. Um, so there is that, that there is a certain amount of creating that goes along with the memoir process as well. And when you have a twisted mind, it. <laughs> well, I, I don't know about you have a twisted mind, but, but I was thinking that, that, a lot of the experiences that we have, and sometimes sometimes more that women have more than men, our realities get discounted. Right. Know? And so even being able to trust your own truth enough to admit it to yourself, Absolutely. accept it yourself, and then to put it on paper knowing people are right. going to read it and have reactions, I think that that can be really a huge challenge. I think it takes a lot of courage, a lot of bravery, and I think it's a gift to everybody. I think it's a gift to read it 
and I think it, it's a gift to communicate it, you know, to, to be able to, even if it was a journal that nobody else Right, uh, to get it out there, and, yeah. and certainly to be able to speak it or write it is such a huge release, it really is. Uh-huh. It's, a, it's such a blessing, and, and then particularly, like you said, there's, you know that there's going to be those people who don't, uh, you know, want to accept it or believe it for whatever reason, um, because it messes with their, their memories or what they're, they're wanting to believe. But for those people who do that maybe experience something similar to then step forward and thank mm-hmm. you and saying they understand has yeah. been huge. So yeah. I know my brother and sister have been really supportive with my writing, thankfully, because um, I don't think that's always the case with family members. Yeah, it can be hard. Yeah, I, I mean, I know there are things that my brothers don't want to hear me talk about. <laughs> right. <laughs> and not that, it, not that it's that they did anything wrong, but things right. that happened in the families that we, as we were growing up and, and that I experienced that they didn't experience. Right. So it's, it's complicated. I think about the, the writer, well, the writer, publisher, photographer, artist, Susan Gardner, who is uh, the publisher of some of Denise Lowe's books. Right. Um, and in talking to Susan, I remember her telling a, a little story about speaking to something at a reading and somebody challenged her is basically saying, you're a writer. What do you know about that? As though she wow. had no life experience. Of her own, you know? <laughs> yeah. She just sits in a room and writes all the time and hasn't lived. If life could be so good. <laughs> that is an interesting one. <laughs> and by the way, Susan has a memoir. If you want to read it. Yeah, exactly. She has lived. She does live. <laughs> Because people make assumptions. They sure do. They sure all do. We categorize people yes. assumptions. We need to be open to, to hearing what maybe is the truth that we didn't have any way of knowing before. Absolutely. Yeah. So is this the first um, major work of writing you have that's not poetry, the memoir that's coming? It is. I actually wrote a uh, novel uh, in 2009, the month of November. And I'd like to get that Is in that print. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was amazed. I was still working full time, but I'd get up every morning and go to my typewriter and close my eyes, not typewriter computer, and close my eyes and let come out what came out. And so I managed to write the complete novel. It was it's called Girl Who Lived in a Glass Bowl, uh, about a blogger, and uh, and then another family that she becomes involved with, a husband and wife and their young boy. And uh, it's told from each one of the characters' different perspectives. So, wow. yeah, yeah, writing's amazing. It's it's so intriguing to just you know allow yourself to have those characters come through and have their voice and write their own chapters and what they want to say. And the story basically writes itself. But mm-hmm. so that's pretty incredible. I think that is the difference for me with the memoir because I'm writing something that's factual as opposed to just allowing whether it's poetry, which most of my poetry is, uh, you know, memoir style and, you know, very much narrative, but, uh, um, yeah, that creativity kind of twists it and turns it and can make it, you know, more complete. But, uh, so the memoir is different. And once I free myself up to do that, I think it'll come easier with it too. So will you have different friends as sort of first readers since this is memoir rather than poetry? Yeah, I will have, uh, he might be one of them, Marcia. I will uh, definitely ask, I think, my brother and sister, who they, they definitely had water signs before it was out in hard copy, too. Uh, and there again, I asked them, is there, you know, are there any poems you want me to pull? And, and neither one of them said yes, that they, they wanted anything pulled, which was a real blessing, you know, to me to go ahead and, and go with it. But I, I will do the same with Done Memories and I uh, spoke to my sister actually just before coming today about calling her this afternoon to get some clarity on some other issues <laughs> and um, had sent her a poem that, that I had written that she hadn't seen before. And, uh, you know, it's like I don't want to pull them back into their trauma if they're not ready. Um, just because I'm ready to talk about it doesn't mean that they're ready to think about it or talk about right. it. So I try to be as respectful of that as I can. Do you have writer friends who are experienced with memoir writing? Yes, definitely. Yeah, I've got a couple of real good ones that are. I was thinking about how your residency in Door County is right on. Right. There's a right on writers group. Exactly. Jim Lawrence and the person who I find very dear is Jerry Mazenton, uh-huh. who, who kind of coordinates that group. I, I need to get in that group. 
<laughs> in your spare time. Yeah, exactly. Mm, good point. <laughs> I know I came away from Door County with, you know, I'm going to walk every morning and every evening like I did there. And, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to take time to breathe because I noticed I don't breathe deeply most of the time. And my health was so bad when I went there. I was on two antibiotics and I just was oh, practically gosh. dragging myself there. And after a few days when I started feeling better, it's like a reality check of, boy, I need to make some life changes and I need to drop some of the stuff that I'm doing, but it's, you know, which ones do you drop? Because yeah. they're all important and they're all passions. So yeah, it makes it, makes it tricky. Yeah. And speaking of things you're involved with, tell a little bit about Kansas Authors Club and also that, that invitation, that new voices, new writers, new styles. Right. What yeah. you're looking for. Kansas Authors Club is the oldest uh, writing club of its kind in the United States. And uh, we have our state convention is coming up. Uh, District 3 is hosting that, and they're doing a terrific job. It is um, Writing the Mysteries of Kansas is the name of it. And it will be in Coffeeville the 13th, 14th, and 15th of October. But uh, one of the things that I'm particularly interested in, in making a change for is that um, we include some categories of spoken word poetry for contests. Uh, the different districts oftentimes offer their own contests. There's seven different districts across Kansas, but there's also the really large um, state contests. And there's been seven categories of poetry and spoken word, of course, hasn't been included. So I'm going to talk to some uh, spoken word poets and find out how they think that would be best to offer if they think it, the judges would be able to um, um, read the poem and make the assessment or if they um, should be sent in via, you know, a, a recording. So I'm looking forward to that, making those changes. And uh, so all those different um, category winners will be for prose and poetry. Entries will be at that uh, contest or at the, the um state convention. So really looking forward to that. And I will be presenting that same weekend. I will be presenting um, my specialty one, which is the rewriting drama without or trauma without so much drama. And uh, so people can catch me at that if they would like. I always remember, uh, and I never remember the name of the person, but so a friend of mine does her stage did a writing workshop, some fancy place back east or with school. Uh -huh. And one of the takeaways for her was was a writer who said, write from your scars. Right. You know, not where you're bleeding, but write from your scars. Uh -huh. I like that a little better than the write from the bleeding. Yeah. I've heard that where you're supposed to slice open a vein yeah. and let it bleed. And that can be a little bit too raw sometimes. Yeah. So I think the scars are better as long as you don't reopen them. But yeah. reopen the wound. So. Yeah. yeah. Interesting balance. So with Water Signs as the newest book that you have released, is this a time when you're doing a lot of reading? I am. I've got, and I thought I had a list made up, and I'm having a hard time finding them right now. I probably somehow destroyed it as I was looking for the, the notes here. Um, I uh, have a Colby, Kansas, which is kind of out in my area of northwest Kansas where I grew up outside of St. Francis. I have a reading in Colby on Saturday, September 9th at noon um, and that's with district seven of kansas authors club at the pioneer memorial library in colby and then uh something with a little activity with you involved which is a real important one for for all of us is uh, september 10th the word save lives yeah, event. yeah nice. you remember that one? <laughs> I think I know about that from six one. to ten at the big six room at the eldridge and then uh, Saturday, September 23rd, I'll be in Emporia at Ellen Plum's bookstore. I don't have her oh. new address. She had some flooding issues, and so they've moved, and she was fortunate that so many community members came forward and, and helped move the bookstore. So I'll be doing that. Okay. And then Wednesday, October 4th, there's the Poetry of Water. Uh, Elizabeth Schultz set that up, wow. and there's going to be, I think there's a dozen of us, and we're all reading oh, cool. poetry about water, and it just happened that she has a book out about water, and I do, mm -hmm. um, and that's from 7 to 9 at Lawrence Arts Center, and then, of course, the, the Kansas State Convention is the, um, 
I think it's the 13th, 14th, and 15th in Coffeeville. And it's only $90 if you sign up before September 16th, which is a really good price. Uh, people can find out more information on that when we've changed our, our uh, link. It used to be kac.org or kansasofficeclub.org. Now it's http or, uh, yes, slash slash kansasauthorsclub.weebly.com. Um, but I Is think the old site directed in that. Yes, it should yeah. still. But also people can certainly friend Kansas Authors Club on Facebook. Yeah. And all that information is posted there too, along with all the different meetings. And how do people find your author's page on Facebook? Uh, just Rhonda Miller author's page. I'm not getting it at the moment because I thought I bet those events are on there, aren't they? Yeah. Actually, I don't know that they are. I need to oh. add them. I've had, I actually pulled them together before coming today. So I need to get them all to Tracy to put on the middle art page and my page as well. I didn't realize I had so many. A couple of them just came about uh, just since I've been back. Exciting. So, yeah. Having a success here. We'll figure it out. Okay. <laughs> so we've been talking, 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 and we haven't let you read anything yet. I'd be I happy to read. That. Oh no! I would be. I know. I'd be happy to read the poem. Actually, that kind of it's the one that I felt like I was given permission to write the memoir. Uh, it was the one that I'd sent uh, you. Uh, this is just entitled "Dad." Sometimes you skip over the things in therapy that are the reason you are in therapy, but the man standing silently invisible by the door holding his head in his hands, is my dad. And he can't speak, and I can't speak. So I sat through that session, and the next, and the next, mute and muted. I dream of my decapitated dad, who is the dad of my childhood reality, even before he died. His was the face cut by my grandparents from the photographs that included my mom, siblings, and me. The headless fatherly man was the man who kidnapped me, I moved every month to keep from getting caught. We were hungry and scared and freezing, and I got tired of hearing the beatings of children and women through paper-thin walls, never knowing, not knowing. Did they hear mine too? But I know he had a head. He laid it in my lap one time when I was five, and I touched his beautiful auburn hair, smoothed it away from his face. I saw it again at 19 when I tracked him down. This was years after the Kansas court system decided Colorado wasn't the place I should live and that my father should live in prison for a time. The last time I saw his head was in a coffin after his murder, but I think it was connected to his body. I didn't check. I can't be certain. In my dreams, waking and sleeping, it is the headless dad I see. He stabs my grandfather to death for molesting me. He looks over my shoulder as I brush my teeth. He appears in closets in the dark, shadowy bottom of swimming pools. He is always watching, looking out for me, just as I am always looking, watching, waiting for him to give me permission to speak. Wow. It was nice to be able to write that. Uh -huh. um, you know, it's something I certainly think about him often. Um, and it's interesting, my sister and I just discussed this this morning, how he was given such a bad reputation or bad rap by my family because my maternal grandparents who adopted my sister and I, it was easier for them to believe that he had killed my mother than that she had died by suicide. As so often the case, people want to, you know, not believe that their loved one died by suicide. Um, so we, you know, weren't allowed to talk about him and certainly not see him. And, you know, the whole incident with the kidnapping made him look like a horrible person. And then just really within the last year or two, thinking back on him, I think about how rare number one it is in our society for fathers to fight for their children, but all the ways that he fought to literally go to jail for us, you know, by taking us, um, even though, you know, wasn't the right thing to do in, in the term of law or legality. But here was this, you know, young man of 26 who lost his wife to suicide. And then at that same time, lost all of his children, lost his job. Um, I can only imagine what his life was like for those next decades. Mm -hmm. So um, the time that I spent with him 
and uh, my sister and brother, when we rejoined after that kidnapping uh, in Denver, we did move a lot, but if we would have been asked, I think we all would have said that we would have chosen to stay with him. Um, As it was, my sister and I didn't recognize our grandparents after we were put in foster homes for a while. And then once the uh, courts decided that my grandparents got custody, we walked right past them in the room where they were waiting for us because we didn't recognize them. So it was really very much like going to live with complete strangers and the uh, lifestyle in Denver where we had total freedom, you know, nobody overseeing us because we had also five uh, half brothers and sisters that we were living with and a new half brother and new half sister. Um, So there were 10 of us children and we definitely, you know, nobody was overseeing us. We were doing whatever we were doing. And then to go to this very strict environment on the farm where we saw no one and, uh, but I also understand as a, as a grown up, um, my grandparents were constantly living in fear that something would happen to us since their youngest daughter died by suicide. Of course, they had that emotion to deal with and, and fear, but also the fact that he'd you know taken us once. I know at one point in time we went to a country school. Um, they received word through the news media that he had said he was going to, and they pulled us from school. So then we were at... At uh, in the farmhouse, and I remember just horrible fear, you know, constantly, um, you know, that something was going to happen. And I feel bad to this day. I heard recently that uh, my daughter, when somebody knocks at the door, instead of going to the door, she goes away from it. And I think, you know, did I leave that with her? Mm-hmm. Because anytime somebody knocked at the door, I went and hid in the closet because I never knew, you know, if it was the police coming to get us or if we were going to foster care uh-huh. again or somebody else was was coming to move us. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how life legacies get passed on for, you know, whatever reason. Things you don't even realize. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, just from reacting. But, yeah. And so thinking about this variety of things in your life, just in the first two decades of your life, right? it's amazing the, the variety of places you've been since there, huh? <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. Once you start talking and she was a model. Wait, yeah, she was a exactly. Wait, she was... <laughs> Let's say it took me a long time to find who I was. In many respects, I felt like I could get along with anybody because you know, uh-huh. when you're a kid and you're in that many different homes, some of them had different religions. So you had that to deal with. All, all of them had different rules. Uh-huh. Um, so you'd have that to deal with. So you kind of feel like, oh, yeah, I can adapt to anything. And and I still feel very much, you know, on the one hand, I think people may look at me and my family as like, wow, you know, this is about as low class and, and um, you know, disgusting or whatever as there can be. And, and that may be my interpretation. But I also, on the, the one end, feel very much like I can be in the room with, I don't care if it's the Queen of England or the President of the United States, well, not this one, maybe, but, uh, yeah. and be able to, to hold my own and feel very much um, that I know who I am mm-hmm. and that I'm as strong a person as I know. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's given me a lot of, I think, uh, self-reliancy and, mm-hmm. and uh, strengths. Yeah. And your writing. So you started, you know, when, when I asked you early on, right. you, were, you were taught to read very early on and you started writing. Have you written pretty much throughout your life? Because I also think about that can be a dangerous thing for right. people, especially when you're living in different households or people going to intrude upon your personal space right. and read things that you did not intend for them to read. I mean, how, how did writing... <laughs> Once I was adopted by my grandparents, I was with them from the age of 7 through 17 when I left. And I can remember... Uh, poem in particular that my grandmother found that had quite some language in it. And uh, she never said a word about it to me. She had a very quiet uh, way of disciplining, I guess. So she uh, had marked through all the negative words with the black magic marker. (laughs) (laughs) And I know one time riding the bus, we rode the bus to school and I had done something like taken somebody else's book and written filth in it, which I so love to do at that age. (laughs) Still do. And uh, still talking filth. And uh, they had called my grandmother, and of course she's like, oh, no, no, that's not something that she would have ever done. And that would have obviously been before she found my phone. At that point in time, I'm sure she's thinking, yes, yes, that is something she could have done. Right. Uh, <laughs> I was a very quiet child. 
So <laughs> all these things were going on in my head. But then once I got to um, to Lawrence, then I did uh, creative writing and child development were my courses of major. So it's interesting uh, as my passions way back when that they still are mm -hmm. my same passions. And I didn't write really the whole time my children were growing up. I think doing things with them and projects and teaching them because we homeschooled them the first few years um, was enough that it took care of my creative urges. But also, I think you're just playing exhausted as a young mother and working. So, yeah. you know, there wasn't a lot of a lot of other room. I know I have to have a certain amount of downtime to be able to be creative, it seems like. Yeah, so. I get that. But I also don't I have a sense that you didn't you didn't become afraid of other people finding your work where they weren't supposed to. Right. You know, I, was, I had a conversation probably either early in the summer or spring, whatever, with Iris Craver uh -huh. uh, about the writing workshops that she leads that are really writing for recovery. Right. And lovely book that she has about that. Iris is a delightful person. Yeah. And and I said, you know, I've encountered in, in my social work and friendship circle, I've encountered people who had things happen that were such an invasion, you know, that they, they kept journals and then somebody in the household would be horrible. And, you know, sometimes those got destroyed. Sometimes they got punished for things that wrote sure. different things that made the, the idea of having things written down feel really scary. Right. And, and I want to just throw this tip out that, that Iris talked about, because I thought this was really cool. She said, you know, there is, there is some healing that happens through actually writing. Sure. And it's not that you have to keep the writing. So for some people, their way may be to write it on paper and to end up burning it. Sure. You know, if that's what it takes yeah. for them to need to do it. Yeah, absolutely. There's something about that concrete writing. Well, even I know I was discussing with another poet in Wisconsin how um, I generally write my writings on the phone, my phone even, and how different it is to actually sit and even with my hand and write with a paper onto pencil, how different that is of a process mentally and, mm -hmm. and just physically for us. So, but I agree that for those people who are needing to write, but don't want to leave it around that uh, that's a great method mm -hmm. or giving to somebody if they trust, if they've got somebody on that order too. Mm -hmm. So, so for listeners who haven't encountered you again before this show, so I've got three of your books sitting right here. Say a little bit about you know, sort of your progression with, with what you're publishing. Okay. Uh, Going Home was my first book of poetry, Poems for My Life. And I basically put that together. I had left my home community of St. Francis under what I felt very embarrassing terms. I graduated from high school at 17, went off to college and uh, immediately tried to end my life. My father had called me and it was my first contact with him. And that was enough. I think just to stir up so much variety of confused messages. And, and uh, so then I was hospitalized for seven weeks, went back to the community of St. Francis and then left basically as soon as I could. Kind of my, my brother rescued me at that point and went off to work with him. But uh, so going back to St. Francis, when we were touring with Karen Goldberg, the state of Kansas and a group of other poets like Wyatt Townley and when Karen and, was the poet laureate right. and the arts had been had funded uh, yeah. and she was yeah taking poetry everywhere and just a great group of people so Roderick Townley and Liz Black and people like that we uh toured Kansas and I really wanted to be able to go back to St. Francis and I thought you know what a way to go back but with the poet laureate and all these other great poets so I put the book together poems that I had written up to that point basically just to have a book to go back with and I was able to speak in front of the high school and kind of share my my story and and read some poems and it was actually while I was back with that book that a woman came up to me on the street and asked point blank did your father ever end up being punished for killing your mother oh. and that shocked me so much the think that because my grandparents had thought that St. Francis is a town of like 2,500 that of course everybody in the town would have also thought the same thing. So that at that point in time, I was very clear on, I have got to write gun memories and make it very clear that my father, you know, did not kill my mother. So that was kind of the whole impetus behind that. But uh, mm -hmm. then Moonstain, what can I say? I mean, I just, you know, gotten involved with Kansas Authors Club. Uh, Dimitri had passed away and uh, I had a lot of poems that I'd written about him and, 
I, I'd say one of the major things when you lose someone you love, particularly as a child and as a parent, and it's sudden and you don't have those opportunities to say goodbye. One of my really important life things was, it's always been to be connected with someone as they're passing away. And I think for a lot of people, they maybe don't have that strength or that desire. It's very different from person to person. But I know as Dimitri was passing, he had had a really rough childhood. And I very much wanted to be able to be with him and be as loving for him to go that he didn't have coming into the world. Mm -hmm. And that was such a blessing to be able to have the strength and to be able to do that. And then I was able to do it with uh, my acting, my children's acting grandparents uh, when I was pregnant with my son. Uh, an aunt who was my mom's older sister called and said, I bet you need some grandparents. And mm -hmm. they were the best grandparents we could have asked for. So I was able to be with both of them. And uh, Lee died two and a half years ago. And then Doris did a year ago. And I was able to be with both of them. But uh, so Moonstain basically was a book kind of about all of those <clears throat> coming to terms with, you know, there again, my mom's suicide on a different level. Um, you know, kind of going through the stages of how it differs from when I was a three-year-old girl as to a seven-year-old girl and finding a, a dead calf in a barn and not being able to mourn my mother's death, but being able to mourn, you know, this Would loss of an animal. Would you share that, from the book? Yeah. Uh, it's called um, Moonstain. Yeah. So I will share it, and I think I've got it memorized, but I will open it up just in case I need it. And this was not long after I'd gone to my grandparents' farm. My uh, The barn door had been shut, and that was, of course, was enough for me to slip in there because I was that kind of a child. <laughs> Moonstain. Well, you read this book a lot, Marcia. <laughs> it's falling apart. I'll have to get you a new copy. Barn doors pushed shut, an indication something worth investigating was within. It took all my strength to open, slide to close again. New birth and pungent urgency led me to the stillborn calf, quite warm. I nestled in the hay beside it, placed my arms around its neck. I knew what death was, had heard whispers of my mother's not long before, and I could hear the mother cow's loud bawling from outside the back barn door. I felt the spirit of the calf lift, swirl around me, disappear. It grew cold. I felt damp fear. I sat in the collegianist stall until my sister came, took my hand, ran with me past my grandmother's blood moonlit garden of hollyhocks, iris, strawberries, rhubarb, past the spot where a rattler soaked up water from a sprinkler one August day, past the rotted elm where winged fire ants swarmed in balls before they tumbled to the ground. We opened the rusted screen door, tiptoed to bed where I lay crying because it felt so wondrous because it felt so good until the moon stain no longer spread across the floor. So there she's seven, and then it kind of goes into, you know, just the angry, rebellious age, uh, you know, kind of aligned it with, I think, the different stages of grief too. You know, there's the acceptance and the depression and the anger and all that different type of things. So like I think Mama Slam certainly deals uh, very much differently as a, you know, adolescent uh, and her anger and the things that she goes through with acting out with sexuality and, and out of the walls, you know, as a young child, not being able to talk about something uh, very symbolic, you know, that we walled up our mom that in the daytime she lived in the walls and yeah. at night she came out and, you know, sat by our bed and nobody else could see her. And it's because she was dead, you know, that whole, um, you know, feeling of just really not accepting death, you know, still in disbelief that um, she couldn't be dead, that she had to be out there. So, And you were three and your siblings were held when you were My brother was four and my sister was five, so we're all just a year apart. Uh -huh. So that's all really young to try to make any sense of yeah, something yeah. that would have been confusing at any time. Absolutely, and especially then not being able to talk about it and, and being separated. I think it was... I know it was traumatic for me to lose my brother, uh, as it was in some levels, you know, to lose my mom and certainly to lose my dad. So, um, and you don't have any idea of time sequence, you know, we would see him, you know, maybe a year later or something, my brother would come for a visit, but, um, it was a lot of, a lot of that. And I've always felt badly. I know he was taken to live with 
a family, uh, an aunt and uncle uh, from my dad's side of the family who had two daughters already and they'd always wanted a son that, um, you know, it would have been very nice if we could have been kept together. Yeah. And I think it makes a big difference. Yeah. And I still see the court systems do that again and again today, Marcia, yeah. where the kids are split up and it's just wrong. Yeah. I know, you know, if it's three kids in a family or four kids, it's hard for one family to maybe take that many children, but boy, it's so much worse for those kids to be split. Yeah, splitting them up. And then even it's in my family, there's even that language issue. I, I, I never thought anything about, I have three brothers. I have three brothers. I've always had it after they were all born. You know, right. it's been the four of us. So people occasionally will say, well, but he's your half brother. <laughs> so, <laughs> There's no half. Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I do that for clarity with mine, but I know in water signs, I finally, you know, mention each one of my, you know, we lived together only a year and I didn't ever see them throughout the rest of my lifetime. But now as adults, I'm friends with some of them on Facebook. Uh My father's, um, uh, who would have been his last girlfriend that gave birth to uh, his youngest son, who is deceased now. But uh, she and I are Facebook friends, and, you know, she's saying, you know, how much she loves me, and I'm saying how much I love her. And the only time we ever met, well, we met at Sorrel's funeral and at my dad's funeral, but uh, we're so connected through Facebook, and I just think the world of her, and she's probably not a lot older than I am. And uh, But it's amazing, yeah. And I, this last few months ago, um, my stepmother passed away, and the oldest stepson um, of her, or her oldest son, my, my step-brother, died and uh so i've really connected with with all of them and uh it's interesting because you do see things so much differently as an adult um you know it's even like reading a book you know you have a favorite book like um and you read it to crime and punishment for example i remember reading it at 18 or 19 and absolutely loving it and reading it again in my 30s and getting whole new meaning from it and and uh just that way with life you know we just have so much more different awareness as we go through our own mm-hmm. life experiences. And particularly, I think, being parents, we have a lot more understanding why people maybe are acted the way they did and mm-hmm. give them a little bit of a break. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> either that or really. <laughs> Actually, I'm second thought. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. How dare you? <laughs> well, this has been delightful and so special. And so for listeners, in case you somehow, because I'm not good enough about saying names often enough, I need to work on that. This is Rhonda Miller, and you probably most easily people find you on Facebook or... I'm always on Facebook. <laughs> to, to find out how to get your information. Sure. At this point, there's not a website, right. but there's a Rhonda Miller author page that they can find. Yeah. And if they just Google Rhonda Miller, poet, all yeah. kinds of stuff about me comes up. So. Yeah, and to find your books, I'm always a huge advocate of buy as local as possible. So that means to me that if you go to a reading where Rhonda's featured, that's the best place to buy the book. If not... You get it through your local independent bookseller. That is really, really good. The Raven's <laughs> a great place to hang out in Lawrence. And Ellen Plum's books, City Bookstore and Emporia has been wonderful. I was Moonstain was the first book of poetry they put on their shelves, which oh, cool. thrilled me. And I'm yeah. thrilled to be doing water signs there. So, yeah. yeah. And, and across the country, I mean, I know I order from small presses, sometimes directly from the press, and yeah. sometimes I go to... To our local, which is Raven Bookstore, and have them order things. Um, I sort of say Amazon's kind of like a catalog. If you don't have to order from there, order locally. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we don't get local businesses much and local arts. profit <laughs> off Amazon. So give it to to your local bookstore or your author even better. All so right. thank you so much, Marcia. Thank you. And we recorded this show on August 29th, 2017 with weird background noises because where we are, this wasn't supposed to be happening, but letters and guttering and all kinds of things were being inactive outside installation up and down. Who knows what you heard? Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks listeners. And so long.